Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Van. With me today is indie author, Justin Mason. How you doing, Justin? Dan, I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's always a pleasure to be a part of the Random Book Club Podcast. You know, we've been talking about this the last couple of videos. Uh, the, the chapters we read for today, chapter 16, chapter 17, the perils of reputation and outrage. Mm -hmm. Let me just say, these chapters are delved so heavily into developing the relationships of our characters. Like by the end of chapter 17, I felt like these two have been best friends for years. Uh, you know, I felt that way too. After reading chapter 17, I'm like, man, Oliver and Luthien are best friends now. Right? Like that's kind of like watching us discuss something on the random book club podcast over time. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Uh, before yeah. we begin on chapter 16, uh, we do have another message from the people. Uh, this one comes in the form of an email. And it comes okay. from Mrs. Breitner. And I wanted to just bring it up before we start talking about chapter 16. Let's so hear it. She, she writes, um, hey, Mrs. Breitner, go Wolves, first of all. Yeah, you got some. I just want to interject and say now, because for the people that have been watching and listening, this is the same group that sent us in the voice messages and the communication last time, correct? So the group that sent us was actually Mrs. Breitner's 10th grade Honor English students. They sent that okay. on their own. Okay. Mrs. Breitner sending an email on her own because she's reading it too. This is the first time she's oh, read this book. You well, know what that's I mean? So, cool. So she's odd. Yeah. Uh, she's just like, yo, okay. So I let my students say what they need to say. That's great. They all got A's. We, you know, uh, as you said, they should all get A pluses for the rest of the semester. We got that. <laughs> she's like, now let's talk real talk here. Okay. Let's We're actually, adults dorks. are talking now. Let's see how this goes. Oh no. <laughs> Adults are talking about this teenage book. Okay. Um, the subject is Oliver did a backward somersault landing nimbly on his feet. So that's the subject of this email. Oh, In your no. last podcast, you talked a bit about the possibility of Oliver having some magical powers. That was me going deep, deep. diving. I was excited to hear about that theory because we've talked about Oliver's awesome abilities in class too. The other day we were talking uh, about the book and one student asked how big do you think oliver's feet are weeks ago <laughs> five <laughs> just one student was like how big are his feet if he can jump around and stuff like that you know they're thinking probably hobbits you know what i mean so um one of the other students mentioned uh that they recognized the author's name r.a salvatore because he writes D, D campaigns uh in characters or something as she writes makes makes sense the student theorized that oliver is a lightfoot halfling so we all spend several minutes trying to find evidence in the book to determine Oliver's foot size. We didn't end up finding the answer. I love it. That's what I do, bro. That's, That's what I do. Diving. Go deep. That's a deep dive. But just now looking into halflings a bit more, I couldn't find anything online confirming that lightfoot halflings have bigger or smaller feet than other halflings anyway, except one site listing hobbits as an alternative name for halflings. That said... The student's point was that halflings in D&D have extra dexterity points. They are quick, agile, but not very strong. They are also lucky and brave, which gives them extra confidence that can help them win a fight. I'd say we definitely see these traits in Oliver. Learning more about halflings, it's time. Uh, it's been fun to see which aspects of Oliver, of Oliver are typical halfling traits and which ones are just Oliver. Here's a brief description of the D&D &D halfling. Uh, she goes into the... Uh, description this is from a DD halfling from a site that she found optimistic and cheerful by nature blessed with uncanny luck and driven by power yeah go ahead 
Well, I'm just oh. I'm just listing them off as you go because I mean it all describes all. It's all Oliver, yeah. And driven by powerful wonderlust, halflings make up for their short stature with an abundance of bravado and curiosity. Oliver. So it goes on talking about the D and D stuff, and then um, while it not, might not actually be magic exactly, Oliver's race does seem to have some special power or advantage compared to humans. I asked a friend of mine who is an experienced D&D dungeon master. Mrs. Brightner's got nerd friends? Oh, <laughs> dude. Did you hear? Mrs. Brightner's got some D&D. She goes to D&D <laughs> sessions every week, dude. Dude, they live in the basement, dude. She plays a half-elf druid. I don't know what she plays. Okay. Mage, mage wizard fire slinger. Yep. And he said that while a player would have to roll a die to make sure halfling lands acrobatics, they'd have like a 70% chance of landing it perfectly and a 90% chance of landing it with minor with a minor setback. So considering a backward flip with a hat catch finish or some or a somersault dismount from a moving horse, Oliver's feet uh Oliver's feet explain these feats. All the best, Miss Brightner, Miss B. So I thought that was cool. I want to bring something up too. I have the D&D 3.5 edition. Aren't they on 5E now? Oh yeah, they're yeah, they're into MMO mode. We won't get into oh, no. it. But here's a little picture. You can't see it on your end, but here's a picture right. of I'll, the size I'll watch the video on YouTube yep, when it goes live. Of the size difference between humans and halflings. So here's Luthien, and then here's Oliver just chilling down at three foot nothing, lives in a swamp. And I was surprised to see that gnomes are actually a little bit taller. Anyway, um, and if we look on the little uh, table 2-1 on page 16 of the 3.5 edition of Dungeons and Dragons Jesus uh, Player's Handbook, we find that the halflings' ability adjustments are plus two to de- dexterity and minus two to strength, and their favorite <laughs> class is rogue. So that makes sense. So now if we go down to chapter, or not chapter, but page 19. Let me scroll down here. Did we get to it? No, that's 16, 17. We're getting there. 18, 19. Okay, halflings. All right, so the halfling racial trait, plus two to dexterity, minus two to strength. Halflings are quick and agile, good with ranged weapons, but they are small and therefore not as strong as other humanoids. Uh, They have a trait called small. A small creature, a halfling gains plus one size bonus to armor class and plus one size bonus on attack roll and plus four size bonus on hide checks, um, but she uses smaller (laughs) weapons than humans. So... Basically, yeah. Here, halfling, base land speed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, plus two to racial bonus on climb, jump, and move silently checks. Halflings are agile, sure-footed, and athletic. Racial Ooh, bonus. Everything Oliver does. Everything Oliver does. Um, let's see here. Yeah, they're good. Uh, plus two racial bonus for listen checks because they have keen ears. You must learn to see these things or sense these things, right? Um, favored class, rogue. A multi-class uh, halfling's rogue class does not count when determining whether blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. They're small. They work. Miss Breitner, you're right. Turns out yes. Oliver's just a halfling. Just like you suspected, Justin. Thank you for uh, going down that rabbit hole with me. But it's confirmed. Homie's a halfling. I want to make one final comment. Yeah. Last last time we were talking about the mangosh, mangosh, mm-hmm. mango, whatever you're calling it. Doesn't matter. That is like a disarming dagger. 
Yes. Right. So typically what that's going to be is it's going to be the handle and then it's like the little thing in the thing and you catch somebody's weapon with it and pull it out of their hand. That's what that is. So I just wanted to confirm that with you. I, because I did some more reading. Yeah, I thought it was a sword. It. It's not like you said, it's a, yeah. it's straight up a disarming dagger. Yeah. It's like a catching or a disarming dagger or something like you'd see in dark souls or something like you'd see in some of those, uh, some of those you know, movies we used to watch when we were kids were like, they'd fight with a short dagger and a sword and they'd block and catch it and pull their weapon away. That's what you should imagine them doing. Yeah. So with that, now we can jump in comfortably into chapter 16, the perils. Go ahead. Hours later. Hours later. <laughs> the perils of reputation. Summary. This chapter begins with Oliver and Luthien on their way to the inner wall of Montfort at night. Luthien seems to be distracted to Oliver, and um, he scolds Luthien to keep his head in the game. They argue about uh, the need for continuing their thievery or thieving, but Oliver was very firm on insisting that the job will never end, saying, like, we're going to just keep stealing. The conversation continues with the halfling recognizing that Luthien is smitten with the half-elf slave girl, but begs him to move on. The pair make their way up onto the rooftops of wealthy of the wealthy upper section, having to hide from many patrolling guards on their way to the more protected northern side. They eventually make their way back down the streets and into the Avenue of Artisans, where Oliver decides on a change of targets. I'm thinking that tonight uh, we do not go down from a roof, uh, the halfling whispered with a wistful smile, rubbing his eager hands together. He's basically saying, we're not going to go into some guy's house. We're going to go straight up to the storefront. And now I'm starting to get on not Team Oliver, but whatever. The new targets are the shops themselves, which pose much more potential danger to the cat burglars. We learn that one of the first things Oliver taught Luthien about bringing, about burglaring or burgling in Montford, is that the wealthy shops of the intersection should be avoided due to the merchants who paid wizards to employ magical wards to watch over their stores. While looking into the large front windows of two shops, Oliver gives Luthien a quick lesson on why we should choose one over the other. This one has the more valuable items, the halfling said, speaking more to himself than to Luthien, and eyeing the fine china and crystal goblets on display. But these... He turned about to regard the many pewter figurines and art in the other window will be the easier to rid of. And I do so like the statue of the halfling warrior. So he finds a sweet pewter statue. And I'm thinking, man, Bob, you play with you play D&D with pewter statues, do <laughs> you playing some Warhammer campaigns over here? Yeah, You know, that's got to be a, a real life reference, dude. And pewter statues. I used to have some, and yeah, man, cool. those swords bend pretty easy. Yeah, they do. Luthien sees the statue as an obvious lure and talks Oliver out of going for this one. But the trap was already set, and the pair noticed Cyclopeans at either ends of the street. They decide to make their way back to the rooftops fast. As Luthien made his way up first, Oliver noticed the crimson shadow left by the cape on the storefront's large window. A few minutes later, after making sure the coast was clear, Luthien pulls up Oliver, who now was carrying a sack filled with china plates and crystal goblets. <laughs> Stolen anyway. I was laughing. I was audibly laughing in the living room to the point to where my brother was like, what's so funny? I'm like, just this freaking halfling. <laughs> this halfling, dude. 
They made their way across the rooftops, running along the gullies of the buildings that connected to each other, giving them ample cover. They split up from time to time, and Luthien almost called out to a shadowy, shadowy figure, but stopped himself just in time to realize, as the shadow shifted in its place, that it was much larger than a halfling. Cyclopeans mm -hmm. were on the roof. So this confirms what you were saying before, that, you know, when the patrols were happening, that there's also Cyclopeans on the roof. I don't remember reading that back then, but... It's, it's, that, it's said that in the book, that there were also some Cyclopeans on the rooftops. This was, I think, one of the first chapters when they got to Montfort. Yeah, so it's like um, they went down, they went to a shop. They, Luthi or Oliver's like, "Yo, let's get this one." And then uh, obviously they saw that this was a trap. Or, well, they realized it, and they went up to the roof. You need to learn to sense these things. You do need to learn to sense these things. And on the rooftops of this intersection on the northern side, all the buildings and shop fronts are so close together that like the roofs kind of like um, a fiddler on the roof, you know, where they're just like jumping around from roof to roof and stuff. They were able to run down the gullies, but um, but they just, at this point, there's freaking Cyclopeans everywhere, dude. Mm -hmm. Since the yeah, it almost felt like this was a, almost felt like this was like anticipated. I, I don't know. I don't know. It I don't seemed have, like a trap. Know, yeah, it definitely seemed like a trap. So uh, this whole section, right, when, because they're going to, well, I'll wait until you get to it. Yeah, the Go merchants ahead. are about to reveal their trap card. Yeah. Since the pair were separated, Luthien hoped that Oliver had also realized that they were not alone. Luthien pulled out his bow and was preparing mentally to make a kill shot when he heard a heavy crash on the street below, followed by the halfling's familiar taunts. Oliver had seen the Cyclopean directly in front of Luthien and continued on, looking for a more defensible, defensible position, but a different Cyclopean popped up uh, from one of the two rooftops on either side of the halfling and started charging down at him with his sword waving fiercely. Oliver pulled out his rapier and mangosh and precisely timed a disarming strike that sent the brute over the edge with a kick to the bottom from Oliver's boot as he tumbled past. There's your uh, there's your disarming dagger coming out again. Uh, this whole scene, since we're on the actual like fight, the interactions now, this whole scene was really hard for me to follow. I, I don't know if it was just because I was tired or what it was when I read it, but this whole scene kind of had me like, wait, what happened? Who, who did yeah, what? Who's where? Like, like who's where? Like, I, I couldn't quite picture it in my head, and maybe I should have just gone back and reread it again. But I just this this whole scene for me was kind of a jumble. But at the end of it, for some reason, I understood what happened but yeah. i just like I, it was hard this was hard for me to follow this part specifically yeah bob's writing style in this book uh he doesn't use ellipses when he's jumping heads or whatever jumping minds yeah. and um basically all he did was just an extra indent and yeah. you went every from, scene he does and this part was one of those where it's like First, we're seeing from Luthien's perspective, he's him and Oliver are running through the rooftops. They're going to different rooftops, trying to make their way out. At one point, they're separated, and then Luthien's jumping up to what he thinks is Oliver, but then realizes as the shadow shifts that it's actually a Cyclopean. So he's like, stops in his place. He's like, okay, I need to just get this guy out of my way. I'm going to have to kill him, but I'm going to have to, he starts going through it in his head. I'm going to have to kill him with one shot. I can't miss silent shot. Can't yep. make noise. And he's just like, I hope that Oliver who's in a different spot. I don't know where he is, but I know he's probably down this way. I hope he realizes that there are Cyclopeans here and in, in the immediate area. Then it cuts 100%. to, then it, and right before it cuts to Oliver, uh, he's like, okay, I'm about to take this shot. And he hears a 
boom, thud on the ground. And then Oliver saying some quip. And he's like, oh, here we go, dude. And (laughs) so then it cuts to Oliver, who was just, it cut, it like rewinds back a moment saying what Oliver's perspective was. He noticed that Luthien was right by a Cyclopean. And he's like, okay, I'm going to try to get the edge on this guy. But before he can get the edge, another Cyclopean comes running down. And this is the one that he disarms, pushes off the edge, and then yells at the guy, fear not, stupid one eye, Oliver taunted. He knew he should be quiet, but just couldn't resist. Even my man Gosh could not could not now take your precious sword from you. And it's like that's what uh, Luthien just heard. Uh, yeah. So yeah. But now Oliver saw three more One Eyes appear and start charging down onto the halfling's position. The fight was on. Luthien took out the Cyclopean closest to him, and then took out two more with perfectly uh, perfect shots from his bow. Oliver defended himself deftly as he made his way to new positions. Luthien, concealed by his cloak, took full advantage as he silently took out more Cyclopians. Working in separate positions, but in tandem, the two companions made quick work of the attack- attacking Cyclopians. I, I mean, I like the fighting. You know, I like I like the, the scenery. I like, you know, the whole way things are going down. I, I just, I don't know what it was about this part. And even, even while we're kind of recapping, I'm like, yeah, I remember reading it. I just couldn't see it right in my head. And again, I think, I think maybe it was my own, probably my own fault, honestly. That's okay. You know, um, this one I've, I had to read twice myself, but once I understood that they're coming from two different perspectives and then at this point they actually joined back together because um, Bob makes mention of like, uh, it, it shows a, a, a disparity between the Cyclopians that are attacking and Luthien and Oliver working together. Even though they're yeah. separated, they're working together to make sure that they're kind of protecting the other person or causing yes. a scene enough to allow the other person a shot. And it even uh, he even writes in there that Oliver at first was overwhelmed by three Cyclopians, but felt like the odds, even though it was three against one, felt more like him versus a really fast big guy, a single attacker. Because, because they these... couldn't fight as one. Right. They could not fight as one. So after taking care of their immediate threat, Oliver and Luthien joined up and began their hasty retreat across the uneven rooftops and eventually back down to the streets. Now, this part I could follow. This part I understood. There was a little bit of humor in there with shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, you know, yep. stuff like that. Like, so there was a little bit of, there was some good humor in this part. And, and this part, this part, I actually kind of brought me back, kind of brought me back to what was going on. So they get back down to the streets. They were now surrounded, hearing many guards in pursuit. They hid under Luthien's cloak for a long time and were beginning to get worried as the sun started rising in the east. The Cyclopians started gaining quickly on their trail by a particularly swift one-eye who was giving orders to the other guards, cutting off almost every escape route. As they drew near to the wall that they had to, that they had to run through, the wide-open courtyard of Morkney Square to escape. So they got close to the wall where they were going to just hop over the edge, but they had to get past this courtyard, which is just super open. There's a fountain in the middle and all that. As they made their way across the um, courtyard, the pair uh, passed a dwarf that was chipping away at a new design on the fountain. Oliver tipped his hat to him as they passed. One Cyclopean was hot on their trail. The distracted Cyclopean never saw the dwarf's heavy hammer, only saw the stars exploding behind its suddenly closed eyelid. 
I have a theory. My theory is that Oliver has some sort of history with the dwarves, or maybe this dwarf in particular. I don't know. Again, the last chapter I've read is the last chapter we read for today. My theory is that Oliver, this is like some sort of silent signal from Oliver, like, hey, you know what I'm doing. You you know what I'm up to. Take care of it. Yep. That's I, my theory. I like that, too. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of it was like, uh, hey, we're both short people. Hey, man. And or like, a drinking buddy you can something. see that I have a sack on my back and I'm coming from the merchant quarter running and you hear a bunch of guards being an alarm. And then just like you said, it's kind of like a signal like, hey, man, you know what's up. If you can do brother. anything for us, great. If not, have a good day. You know, it's like it's like, you know, like I'm going to give most of this stuff to the people that need it. Like, help me out, bro. Thankfully, I'll, I'll buy you a drink of the dwarf. Or yeah, right. Me chat yeah, the dwarf, bro. Thankful for the unexpected assistance. Oliver and Luthien nodded their appreciation as they made their way safely back to the apartment. The two were coming down from the night's excitement in their own ways. Luthien mad at Oliver for wasting time stealing at a time like that, and Oliver upset at the mostly broken goods that now filled his sack. However, what? I was so funny. However, the halfling was happy at the sight of one treasure that was left unharmed, the pewter statue of the halfling warrior. So ends chapter 16. I think Oliver, for all of his kindness, all of his goodness, all the things in him that make him a character that you can like, I think he's a little vain at times. Yes. And a little self-serving, but you know what? That's the best part about having a multidimensional character. Even sometimes, I guess, in some instances, an anti-hero. That's the best part about having a character like that is you do root for them. But in the back of your mind, you're like, hey, he's kind of a dick. Yep. So. And it's the chapter is called The Perils of Reputation. Yeah. It's almost like that that statue was specifically there to lure Oliver and the reputation of the Crimson Shadow at this point is he can't be stopped. So they're just amping up all the guards in this area and they still get away. So, but now it's kind of like this one came close to home. This isn't one that just happened over the course of three weeks that we don't hear about. This is one that's like, this went wrong and it could have been worse. Do you think at this point that there's maybe some suspicion that Oliver is not the Crimson Shadow, but do you think there's some suspicion that Oliver is doing some of the thieving? And do you think that maybe him having the statue at this point will maybe come back to bite him in the ass? That is a great point to bring up, which was my second point to bring up. If the merchants left the bait for... No, that's good. It's a great segue into it. If the merchants left the bait for Oliver in the form of a halfling warrior statue, does that mean they suspect Oliver is the Crimson Shadow? Ooh. So it's like Oliver's back in town. The merchants know Oliver's back in town because they've been to the Dwelf, you know, listening in and doing their little merchant seal with the Cyclopians afterwards. Mm-hmm, and yeah, that halfling, he wasn't he kicked out of Mudford? And why is he back? And why is he so quiet in the corner? You know, he's just drinking along over there with uh, Taz. Who's this, who's this new dude? Yeah, who's this new guy? This tall, freaking fisherman Jingle dude. Fire. Such a good-looking guy. Man, Luthien's good-looking. So, yeah, I, I wonder that, too. I'm thinking, if they suspect Oliver that much, like, oh, and that, that's another good point. So what if that is, like, 
like you said, going to come to bite them in the butt. These storefronts are magically warded by wizards. How difficult would it be to put like a spell of finding or something like that or like a detection thing? You know, go ahead. I have a prediction. Yep. It will probably won't come true. Uh, if I was booking this, I say if I was booking this, if I was writing this, my scene would be to have Oliver get captured and to have him be suspected as being the Crimson Shadow. And I would have Luthien then rescue him as the Crimson Shadow and have like people freak out that it wasn't Oliver. Like that would be my, that would be how I That's, that's wonderful. I would write it like this where um, one day Oliver's gone or I wouldn't write it, but if I, in my own canon universe, Oliver's gone and it's found out that Oliver was taken as the Crimson Shadow. They think they're going to, and the, and they bring him to court or whatever. And the pewter uh, statue is, you know, article a or whatever you are the crimson shadow you stole from this there was a crimson shadow mark you have this in your possession you're now sentenced to death and luthien can't do anything or is told by oliver not to do anything and then oliver gets put in prison or something oh my god and he just has to sit and watch and it's like a sacrifice that oliver does but whatever that's not that's not the story that's happening right now next point to bring up why does God, I Ol- hope not. I don't want to read that. <laughs> Why does Oliver insist that they continue robbing the merchants if both him and Luthien know that they leave Crimson Shadows? Why that does is he keep doing it? Question. That's a great question. I wonder if... Because maybe... now they know. They know that they're leaving a shadow. Oliver sees it all the time. And it's like... when The reason why I bring it up is because in the beginning of the chapter, they have that argument of... Uh, why do we have to, we have enough money. Why do we keep going? And Oliver like turns and gets very serious. He's like, we will continue stealing from these merchant types, dude. Merchant types. We're, we're going to, he says something like, we're going to continue stealing from these merchant types until they are peasant types. You know, and then we're going to steal from the poor, the peasant types that are now merchant types and give it back to the peasant types. Yep. And it's the cycle is going to keep going. And so I don't know if he's trying to build the reputation of the crimson shadow again. Or if yeah. he's doing it out of his own thing, or if it's both, you know? Question, not to deep dive too much. Do you think it's a possibility that at one point, Oliver was the Crimson Shadow? Ooh, dude. That could and, totally be. And, and, oh, he man. Had a, and he had a bail. And maybe I, I don't think him and Brindamore have a pre-existing relationship. They kind of do, do think- right? Because Brindamore went to him and was like, yo, dude, you got to watch over this kid. I know. But do you think maybe Oliver gave up that life as the Crimson Shadow because it was just getting to be too much? Or do you think? <sighs> maybe he gave it up because it's like it was too much for him, too much responsibility. The Crimson Shadow represented something to the lower class people that like we can still take it on the merchants, you know, but it got to a point where it's like, okay, it's too hot now. People realize their place. Maybe it was like 20 years ago before Green Sparrow. More questions. Yep. What if he was the Crimson Shadow and what if Brenda Moore put him in that location to rob that stagecoach when Luthien was crossing that bridge, knowing that Luthien and his good nature would help him? And that was how they put the two together. That is some extreme foresight. And it's backed up because Brenda Moore said, I've been watching you guys for a while. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> no, dude, I love that. And that's I, that's how my brain works, dude, especially I, as a writer. I want to keep 
we, we have time. I want to keep diving in because the next chapter is pretty short. So let's dive in a little bit more. Yeah. My, my thought this whole time has been, what if Oliver was the Crimson Shadow? Before I love Luthien? it. I love that. I hope he is, or I hope he was. And he's kind of like teaching Luthien what it is to have honor yet still be a thief. And, you know, when all we've heard of the rumors of the Crimson Shadow wasn't anything bad. It was just that he was yeah. taking care of the merchants. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Taking care of them as in like stealing from them. Yeah. And what if, you know, was it 20 years ago or was it like a hundred years ago? I don't remember when the Gaskins invaded. Yeah. What if Oliver was part of like the army of Gaskins and came across the crimson Cape. And then as green Sparrow was coming into power, um, he was doing thievery. But then once, uh, green Sparrow started putting Cyclopeans in all the cities, um, he had to be like, it's too hot. I got to get out. Yeah. Interesting dude. But why would Brindamore have the Cape? Brindamore is the one that gave Luthien the cape and the bow. I don't know. Places of note. The Avenue of Artisans. I have to stop you. I have to stop you and go back because this is really cool and I like it. And this is the kind of stuff I like to think about. What if Oliver and Brindamore are really close friends or accomplices, allies? And what if uh, Oliver maybe has lied a little bit to Luthien? And what if the cape and the bow both belong to Oliver at some point and Oliver left them in Brindamore's cave for Brindamore to do. To keep it safe right? because Brindamore yeah, is in hiding. It safe. Yeah. And Oliver didn't want to get caught with those items when he was out on the trail. What if Oliver is an agent of Gascony and keeps an eye on things, getting ready for the uprising along with the good wizards and they're just waiting for the right moment. No concrete evidence to back any of this up. All speculation, probably for the last five to seven minutes of discussion here. So this is not canon. <laughs> what if we create a fanfic website for the sort of bedwear? <laughs> Places a note. The Avenue of Artisans, located on the northern side of the wealthy upper section in Montfort. The Avenue of Artisans is a place for shops and stuff like that. And yep. Very expensive and, I, and blah, blah, blah. I love, love that it's called the Avenue of Artisans. Yeah, compared to, what do we call it? Side Street? Tiny yeah. Alley? Uh, tiny, yeah. Tiny, tiny Alcove. Tiny yeah. Alcove, yeah. Tiny Alley. <laughs> That's a banger, bro. Uh, Morkney Square, which is in, this, uh, in the middle of the upper section of Montfort, a wide plaza mm -hmm. centered by a tremendous fountain and flanked by many craft shops and fine restaurants. Cool. Special people. There was one dwarven sculptor in Morkney Square, unnamed, yeah. unnamed, but working on a new design on the fountain that centered the square. This dwarf aided the fleeing Luthien and Oliver with a hammer blow to the pursuing Cyclopean's face. One more question. We have the one Cyclopean that's running a little bit faster than everybody else, barking orders, getting people organized. Could he also be mentioned knowing that maybe he's a little bit higher up ranking Praetorian guard? Maybe he's almost like a commander or a leader maybe on the same level as the Cyclopean that Luthien killed earlier in the book. Could be. And I, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'd like to see if that turns out that way because um, I guess we just have to see in the next chapters, you know, what happens to that Dwarven sculptor. I know the Dwarven sculptor does come back up. I just don't cool. remember how. But I do remember, oh. that's why I listed him as a special person. I remember he comes back. I don't remember the Cyclopean, but I wasn't paying attention to the Cyclopeans at that time. I didn't even know about, like, I didn't even catch those little things about how Cyclopeans are well, important have, and stuff. 
you have him running faster. You have him barking orders and directing yep. people. And we haven't seen that from other Cyclopeans really yet in this book. Yeah. And it's not the Cyclopean that had the crossbow because he's dead. But yeah. what if it was like his brother? You know? But what I mean, what I mean was, what if he was on the same level as that Cyclopean? Right. right? Like the, like the commander. Yeah. Um, I have no questions for Bob this week. Or for that chapter. Um, I think I I'm running either. out of questions for Bob just because now we're in the story. In the yeah. beginning, it's like, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And then now it's like, okay, right. now I get it. We'll go with yeah. it. Chapter 17. Oh, let's change this. So what did what did you think about um, chapter 16? Give me like the overview of what do you thought about that? Well, first of all, I love chapter 16. And as we sit down to discuss it, you know, we find ourselves having all these different questions. And I'm just like, and then I see us deep diving and I'm like, man, there's serious potential for some awesome like possibilities yeah uh chapter so chapter 16 obviously leaves us with a lot of questions like was the pewter figure even left there as bait for oliver do they already suspect oliver is the crimson shadow which is what they led must. me to believe well maybe oliver was the crimson shadow before you know maybe there's a whole line of people that have been the crimson shadow and oliver just happens to be the last one genius writing so so I was just thinking about that. I agree with you, Dan. And so I really like chapter 16 in that aspect. I didn't like some of the fight scene because I found myself getting lost. However, again, I have to state it could have been to my own dismay. If I could have been tired, I just could have been not following it like I should have been. But so that was the one thing I had an issue with in chapter 16. But overall, chapter 16 is freaking great. It was. And I want awesome. to know your thoughts on it, Dan. Yeah, I liked it because it showed kind of a failure. They succeeded. It was like... They did it, but they fail seated. Yeah, they 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 successfully escaped and they got the goods, but they now know that they have a a, a bunch of heat on their tail. And oh, not yeah. only that, but it's almost like they're leaving a calling card saying, "Hey, halfling warrior, you would like this, right? You know, if yeah. you take this one statue, we kind of know what's going on." So now that there's that crimson shadow there and the statue's gone, how is that not going to lead them to believe any fantasy setting ever? The bad guys would immediately say, yo, it's that halfling. We're looking for a halfling. And even if they don't finger Oliver right from the get-go, I think they're going to round up any halflings in the city and we could have a witch hunt on our hands. We'll see. We'll see what happens at the Dwarf later on. Chapter 17, Outrage. 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 This short chapter begins with describing what the days following the near capture in the upper section of Montfort consisted of. Luthien sure. and Oliver were laying low, spending their time in the Dwelf, listening to new rumors of the recent events surrounding the mysterious Crimson Shadow character. Oliver was happy for the self-imposed quarantine, but Luthien was brooding by himself most of the time. At first, Oliver thought Luthien was just nervous from all the attention, but soon realized after a few days that it was probably that it probably had more to do with his feelings over the slave girl. Do you think that these feelings we see a lot in books, right? We see a lot in stories and movies. It's always the love. It's always the distraction of feelings and love and intimacy that bring a tragic end to a hero or or really are a, a, a powerful character's downfall. We've seen it hundreds of times in tons of different stories. At this point in the book, do you are do you kind of fear for Luthien a little bit, thinking maybe he's going to make a bad decision just based on 
one glimpse of this girl. Absolutely. And this is why I I'm glad this, this is why I'm glad this chapter happens because Oliver is us going, dude, you saw her once, dude. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I mean, this this kind of thing actually happens in real life where people are just yeah. Oh, it's love at first sight, but the other person has no idea no, that you exist. You know what I mean? Yeah, they don't know who you are. And like, you know, I mean, at least I go to dinner five times and you know, don't give the waitress my phone number until right. five trips later. You know, right? You gotta, Come on. you gotta, Come on. you know, you gotta give it a gotta couple. Get to know them <laughs> and so uh, th- this whole love thing with Luthien, it just comes yeah. off as like, I, I mean, I don't, it, I can very, I could very easily defend it as a yeah, me too. as a me too. part of the story but it seems yeah. like it's very much stapled on like it's like ink tink he loves this girl let's make it let's make it all about the love right now go ahead let me counter that by saying it also feels like bob is being conscious of that thought and saying while yes it may feel stapled on oliver's also not putting up with that shit yeah, he's, he's in saying, tune we're not going for that and it actually and does lead to some more interesting development in Oliver's character. Absolutely. And it's also almost a way of Bob to say, I understand that this love at first sight concept is kind of BS. Yeah. Sure. It might happen. It has happened. But it's kind of a BS writing mechanic and I am conscious of it. And here is Oliver speaking as what most of you readers are probably thinking. Dude, don't do it. You have been searching for the meaning of life, Oliver stated, and Luthien eyed him doubtfully. I only lament that you choose to find it in the form of a woman. Luthien saw Oliver's point and let his obsession relax a bit. He also pointed out to the halfling that his points were so accurate that he could, uh, could have only known them from personal experience. I loved this part. This whole couple pages was great. So here's another part from the book. Luthien didn't notice it, but many times that morning, Oliver's expression would brighten suddenly as though the halfling was reliving fond memories or Oliver would grimace in heartfelt pain, as though some of the memories were perhaps not so pleasant. So he's going, you know, I just told him off, but I can remember when I went through this. I can remember when this happened, you know. The funny part is I've been there before. Yep. Where I've done that to somebody and I've said that to somebody, but then I go and reminisce about the past a little bit. And I find myself, I go back to the person and maybe Oliver doesn't do this, but I've gone back to the person. And I said, you know what? I did the same shit. Yep. Changing the subject, Oliver throws a winter coat at Luthien, stating that it was ruined Luthien inspected the ruined outerwear and found that a tear that had been obviously made by something sharp, something like Oliver's mangosh. With that, the two headed to the market, but Oliver proclaimed after a while that there was nothing of proper value and that they would have to check back in at the market tomorrow for better deals. So this is more of Oliver's soft side coming out saying, look, dude, I know you want to go to the market. I know you want to go look for the girl. Take his knife or take his mango slit this jacket shit. Let's go. Yeah, that's and that that shows up um, and we're almost at the end right now, but I'll just bring up one of the points. Uh, one of the points that I want to bring up was Oliver's empathy. Oliver is such a good friend to Luthien that he confronts him when he needs sense knocked back into him. But after some introspection, when he's thinking about his past experiences, 
decided to fabricate an excuse to go to the market. It seems as if he created this excuse specifically so Luthien might have a chance at seeing his crush. He's like, yes. okay, he's been thinking about this girl. You know what? What's the harm? Let's just take him to the market. He's probably not going to see her, but let's go. You know, if anything, I'll get a new jacket out of it for the kids. You know? Love it. So I, I love that too. I'm back on Team Oliver. Team Ollie. On their way out of the market, Luthien saw her and she him. She even smiled at Luthien, to which her slave master slapped her. Luthien had to be held down and made excuses for until everything settled down. They made their way back to the apartment and Luthien throws a tantrum. Wait, you left out the fact that the Cyclopeans came over and even investigated things. This was huge for me when I oh. was reading it. I was, I, because I, I'm reading this and I thought, uh oh, they're going to question Oliver. I thought, I thought it was going down right here. Yep. Well, yeah, I, um, I kind of just skipped over it because this is one of those chapters where not a lot actually happens, but we've, t- we've talked about these chapters yeah, before. The little things do make a difference. And the fact that they you notice that when, when I think about it, yeah. So the slave, so first of all, she sees or he sees her. She looks at him and smiles in Ooh. acknowledgement. Like, hey, it's you again, you know? Or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. so that just brightens Luthien's day. But then the slave master turns around and slaps her. And Luthien's honorable side wants to run over there right now and take care of business. I have a absolutely terrible, terrible what if. Do it. And I'm, ho- I'm hoping this is not true because I'm going to cry when I read it if it is. Okay. What if she's not a slave? The next chapter is called Not So Much a Slave or something like that. It is called what Not if- So Much a Slave. What if she's a sl- What if she's not a slave? What if she's a plant? And what if that's her job? And what if she's there to try to get his attention, to try to get him to admit something to her, to try to get them in trouble? Because they they've they're finding out who Luthien is through some sort of magic or something. Oh my god, no! What if that happens? What would oh, that mean no. to you? Freaking well, first of all, that I'm a genius writer because that's probably what I would do. <laughs> I would have I would have her be bad. That would be my based be on my, what we have read. I would guess that that's not the case. I guess don't the, want her to be bad. The next chapter is called "Not So Much a Slave" or whatever, so we can kind of guess like, "Ooh, what's going to happen?" You want to read more because this slave girl is a big part now, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I feel like it doesn't have to do with that because Luthien saw this girl before he was like the Crimson Shadow, right? I mean, he was—he mm. actually had the cape and stuff, but like, didn't he see her? Like, how would she have known? How would she be a plant? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a good. That's a good debunk. That's so a good debunk. It's a good debunk, but we still don't know what "not so much a slave" means. You know, that could yeah. she could still be something different, but I don't think she's a plant to try to get Luthien to say something or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I hope not. Damn it. But that's as a we good know, debunk, though, because I never thought of that. It's a good debunk. But as we know, Bob does write his characters very specifically based on their race. So with Oliver. He doesn't have a magic man gauche. He's just fast and blah, blah, blah. So what would make a half-elf become a slave if if we looked at their traits in the D&D 3.5? They probably have something of, like, why would they be a slave, you know? So yeah. maybe she wants to be there or something, you know? Yeah. We'll have to find out. So anyway, that's, that's a little part that she acknowledges him. 
she gets slapped. Then it causes so much of a panic within Luthien that Oliver immediately is like, I'm jumping on this kid. He and doesn't then, even let Luthien get up. Yep. He's on him. Yep. He's like, dude, settle down, settle down, settle down. You're going to cause a scene. Dude. And like other people are helping because they kind of know Luthien and Oliver at this point. Yeah. And they're like, because of the time in the Dwarf, right? Yep. And he's probably talked about it to other people being like, dude, this half elf girl with the green eyes and the wheat colored hair. Oh my God. And they're like, dude, I know she's hot, but like, keep it chill, dude. Be chill. The cops are here. And (laughs) And then the cops show up. (laughs) The cops show up. And then Oliver makes up this excuse. My friend just. Go ahead. Nice. The Psychopians show Ooh, up. The Psychopians, oh, <laughs> oh, God. The so Psychopers showed up. Oh, no. The Psycho police officers showed up. And, the Psychopians showed up. <laughs> and uh, they need an explanation because this kid is red in the face and fighting like five dudes, you know, to get to get up. And yep. Oliver's like, no, no, no. It's uh, my friend had found a roach in his biscuit or something like that. Yeah, it was a, a roach in his biscuit. It's gone now. Yeah, yeah it's gone. So we, we are good. And so then Oliver drags him back to the apartment. So that was almost um, a disaster right there. Like could have easily that, that got that got very tense very quickly. And you know that could have been a good like sit, you know movement into the next part. He gets in, he gets imprisoned or something. And now we have a different scene. But I like that it doesn't go that way because they have been laying low and I want to see what their next moves are. So they make their way back to the apartment and Luthien throws a tantrum. He starts kicking things, throwing things around because he's 20 years old and that's what he does. I I get it though. I mean, I I've been in situations like that too. We've all been there. Yeah. Luthien demands that Oliver finds out who the slave master is so he can save the half elf girl. Oliver points out that this is probably bait but he could refuse but he could refuse Luthien as young man held up oh he could not refuse Luthien as the young man held up a pewter statue of a halfling warrior and asks bait like this saying hey bro so you think she's bait great but what about this thing that you stole the other night that almost got us killed so if you can go after this with cyclopians all around What's preventing me from just learning who this slave person, is, slave master is and, I don't know, breaking her out or something? So that ends the chapter. Oof. One point to bring up, Luthien is smitten. Oliver confronts Luthien to describe what he sees uh, from an outside perspective to help Luthien understand how naive he is. You, this is what Oliver's saying. You do not even know this woman. This half-elf, she is beautiful, I would not argue, but... You imagine everything, every quality you desire as a part of her when all you really know is her appearance. And I bring that up because that is something that is like, it's like that one kind of hit home. It's like, yeah, I guess so. You know, People I do see, it all the time. Yeah, I can and see you're that like, happening. Oh, this person would be so cool to go out with and hang out with and maybe date or yep. you know, fall in love with. And then you meet them or you actually spend time with them and they're a total disaster. Yeah. Well, it's like one of those things where what you were saying earlier, which I'm totally on board with now about how Bob wrote this, like he initially writes it as this just smitten kitten Luthien where he's just like, oh, she's so dreamy. I want to date her. I want to hold her hand, you know, uh, yeah. and it, it's annoying. He, he does it to the point of annoyance. But when Luth, when Luthien's confronted by Oliver, by this kind of discussion of like, this is this is a more deep 
uh, sentence here or more deep like thought. Yeah, she's beautiful, but you've imagined every everything, every quality you desire as part of her, but you only know her appearance. You don't even know her. And that yeah. that makes it a little more okay for me. And like, okay, he's actually showing this. And and that's that's something about Bob's writing that I really like. He does throw in these things that if you choose to, you can see this and then you can put it onto yourself and be like, have I been doing that lately? And he, yeah, he, yeah. they're almost like little morality tales uh, through it. And I really like that. And it's good writing. Yeah, it's great writing. And that's it for chapter 17, Outrage. Outrage obviously being in the form of Luthien throwing a tantrum after eating that cockroach in his biscuit, dude. Yeah, I mean, it has nothing to do with the girl on the market. I don't think he cares about her at all. Nah, she's nothing special. <laughs> yeah, she's all right to look at, but eh, nothing special. So, it's got me asking some questions, you know, could there be a rift between Luthien and Oliver because of this? Uh, is the girl a plant? Is she good? Is she bad? Is she neutral? What about that merchant? Are the Cyclopians suspective of uh, Luthien and Oliver now after this situation in the market? You know, I mean... I don't know. This could come back up. Some of this stuff could come back to bite him in the ass. And normally I'd say like, it doesn't, there, there's much more uh, like, what would you call it? Like credence or, or like, Oh, I can't think of the word for it, but there's much more pointing at the fact that the halfling warrior statue is actually like a plant for Oliver or is like trying to get Oliver. I don't so much see that in the slave girl. However, it is chapter 17 and there's only 24 chapters. So my brain goes, yeah, this is going to be their, this is their lure for Luthien. Like they had this to have the, one for both. Right. So this is the start of their big climax to get you into the next book. So we know that this girl is obviously the lure, you know, if it was a longer book, you know, maybe I would be more likely like that doesn't seem like a bait, but it is at this point, you know, it's gotta be. So it's a little, it's a little, it's a little threadbare to put together, but nice reference to the horse. Got to bring him up. He's still in the stables, dude. I hope they visit oh, him right. and feed him apples, him and river so dancer, too. you know, Man. but I'll, you got to let this one slide. You got to go. Okay. Yep. She's the Lord. How does this work out? And we're about to freaking find out in the next chapter. It's not so much. In the, next episode. In the next episode, <laughs> in the next episode of Luthien's gamble. Oh, sort of Dragon Ball Z. So, smash like and subscribe for the next episode. <laughs> if you I've guys um want to watch more of our stuff or listen to us, we're on YouTube, we're on BitChute, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, yeah. Spot, you know, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Justin is a a great indie author. If you want to check out his stuff, it's in the links in the description below, as always. Um. That'd be awesome actually, if you checked it out. I actually want to plug the podcast quick. Go ahead. Uh, one, one more time. Um, I've been listening to it on Spotify. And can I just say, it sounds amazing. The sound quality is better on the podcast than it is on the YouTube video, yes. It just based on how I edit it. So, it is so easy to listen to. I throw my earpiece in, I put the episode on, and it just, man, it it's awesome. I well, love thanks, it. thanks, dude. That's awesome. And we're getting more listeners every episode it's awesome and yeah so it's actually really fun to do and i just can't wait to continue it so with that thank you very much for joining me justin i appreciate that you were here i'm always happy to be here 
on the podcast. Thank you for having me, and thanks for continuing to let me work with you, Dan. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Random Book Club Podcast.